Hey guys, this is Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt, and you're listening to episode 21 of the audio version of the 100% Wild Podcast. And today, it's just Matt and I, and we are answering several of your very own deer hunting questions. But I have to apologize in advance due to some technical difficulties with my microphone during this recording. My audio sounds a little rough on this one, so hopefully you can bear with me as we tackle topics such as hunting properties far from home, how to hunt a deer that primarily lives on your neighbors, and how to hunt near clear cuts. Enjoy. Hey guys and girls, welcome to the 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt. With me today is Matt Drury, of course, and we're switching things up a little bit today. Instead of having a guest, and instead of answering just one listener submitted question, we are actually going to do kind of rapid fire style, me and Matt answering a whole series of questions. So, uh, so Matt, are you up for that? I like it. Let's do it, man. Yeah. it's uh, We're changing everything up. Not only are we doing different questions, but we're also not even using my nice mic today. <laughs> we're just uh, been having technical difficulties and uh, we're just trying to make it work. So <laughs> one of those kind of weeks, man. Uh-huh. I, I hear you. <laughs> I uh, I we were just talking though. Despite the technical difficulties, despite my website crashing, I do have good news. Since uh, since the last time we did one of these, I have gotten confirmation the Holyfield is still alive, and I actually saw him last night. So, Boy. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. So what, what was the story last night? What, you know, is it one of those deals where he was just too far? Well, I actually couldn't hunt last night because I was going to be recording another podcast. Um, but I was able to just sneak out. Um, it was actually about an hour before dark. Um, but I happened to have, you know, a few minutes before I had to go start recording. So I was like, well, I might as well just sneak over to this. Cause like we talked about, I can, it's just close enough to my house that I can sneak out down to the road close enough to this place. I can see into this kind of low spot where he tends to be a lot. And lo and behold, there he was just walking around like 45 minutes to an hour before dark. Um, there were some does. He was, I don't know if he was pushing the does around, but he was kind of following some does. Um, and I just was watching them through my binos and just, man, he's a nice buck. He's a, I'm just really glad he's still alive. Whether I can kill him or not, it's kind of nice to see that he made it through October. He made it through the rut. He made it through gun season. And uh, now I'm starting to have these crazy ideas of maybe – Maybe he'll just make it to next year, and I'll be able to chase him for year three. So that's a tough, especially the. It sounds like the area you're in is so high pressured. It's so tough to make a decision like that. You know, the what if, the unknowns. You just don't know if you're gonna see. I mean, he could get hit by a car uh, in January. Who knows? I, I don't know. want to say that, but it is. It's one of those tough things. And the guys that you know, the Marks, the Terrys, the guys that do it you know, year after year, it's kind of just part of it. It's funny to kind of go off your story. Mark just sent uh, dad and I a picture of a real big deer he had on one of his pieces. It was his number one target buck for the late season and the neighbor had killed it. Mm-hmm. And, um, this was an area where he's had some issues in the past, but it wasn't that guy. It wasn't that neighbor where he's had the issues. I guess uh, right next to there, th- th- there's a guy that leases it. And he's a real nice – it's a nice family. It was um, I think a 75-year-old gentleman. I mean you know, oh. like Mark was happy for him. And I even said that. I said, you know, hey, at least he didn't get poached or you know, the, the kid that's causing you all the troubles didn't shoot him. I mean it's a nice family. It's one of those deals where – you know, as, as hunters, we chase these deer and and we get pictures and you make, you feel like it's your deer, 
but they're free, you know, 100% wild roaming animals. Yeah. It is what it is. I mean, at any given moment, when you pass a deer at one point, it may be the last time you ever see them. You don't know. It's just part of it. But I think if you're wanting to get some age structure to them and, and you know, and, and even just the the thrill of the chase, I mean, it's it's a cool thing what, what you're, you're contemplating doing. But, boy, that's a tough, tough choice to make. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of it maybe – you know, he disappeared off a of camera and, you know, I, I had been scouting and not seeing him for like 12 days, 10 or 12 days or something like that. And I just started, started having this feeling that he had been shot by somebody else. And so I, I kind of came to terms with that. So I think now, like, now it's like, oh, a bonus that he's back. Um, so something in between that time switched in my head somehow and has got me, you know, thinking these crazy things. But, uh, but like you said, anything can happen. And um, I guess I, I think, you're looking at the journey, I guess it's focusing on the journey. It's been such a cool journey and such a cool hunt. And so whatever happens, you know, it's still been a great experience. And like you said, here in Michigan, there are no guarantees. There's so many other hunters and stuff. I've got, you know, a little bit of hope because I know that my little chunk, I'm going to be careful on it. And I happen to know a couple neighboring properties I don't think will be hunting um, anymore or very little the rest of the season now. Um, so I'm hoping maybe that'll help. Um, so it's the final stretch, you know, we'll see what happens. I, uh, either I'll put an arrow in him here in the next few days because I am going to go out a couple times here. There's a good cold front hitting. So either it's going to happen and it'll be an awesome ending or the, uh, or the hunt or the journey and story will continue either with a happy long-term ending or, or maybe not. Who knows? Well, I hope the best for you. That that would be an awesome storyline, especially to have three years of history with a deer like that. And, you know, you can't, you can't do it unless you – unless you give him another year, you can't, you don't know what they could do, what he could blow into. You just don't know until he gets that time underneath, you know, to, to, to grow and get bigger. And, you know, it's a lot of what ifs, but it's worth trying it. You never know. It's yeah. worth trying. Could be, you know, it could be the best year you've ever seen in your life come next year. Right. Yeah. So yeah, good it's, luck. yeah. You, you just, like you said, you never know. And I don't know, you know, for some people, I've been very fortunate. I've already killed two bucks this year. Um, yeah. So it's not like I'm sitting here like I just have to kill a buck. I feel like I've already had a very successful season. I've been very blessed and fortunate. Um, I have venison in the freezer. Now it's kind of, you know, just hunting for my own kind of, I don't know, enjoyment, pleasure. Yeah. So it might be one of those things where I'm just going to have to see how the hunt goes and um, if he's there in front of me and if it feels right. We'll see, but uh, but real quick, what about uh, what about your your buck of the year, Hook? Anything new there? Well, he's uh, disappeared. I mean, I, I'm I'm in a similar situation where, and he did this last year on my cameras. So once gun season, I think I, he disappeared from my cameras. But I did have one encounter with him. This was last year during the gun season, and then I never saw him again. I think the way my lease is set up, I think they just kind of crush back into the timber into my neighbor's timber even further and they just kind of hole up there for the rest of the year once gun season hits and you know i haven't had a picture of him since the rut the morning i was hunting you know the the timber set and i had a picture of him like 200 yards away yeah. kind of cruising. not had a picture of him since and i'm not really surprised um just based on the history of what happened last year uh, but 
you know, the only thing I can, and I just went to pull my cards and check cameras two days ago and my pictures just sucked. It, <laughs> it, it's exactly what happened last year. Once gun season hit, I mean, it's like they vacated and then we didn't even really hunt that hard. Um, Adam, my lease partner was there for the first like four days of gun season and he had a really good encounter with a different buck. But outside of that, you know, there wasn't a lot of pressure. So I think they just kind of go into the timber and, you know, and just, you know, for the rest of the season, that's where they are. Now, last year, my neighboring property to the West, it's kind of like this hillside and it's an ag field. And last year it was in beans. This year it was in corn. So all that's cut out. Last year, we see 50 deer a night on this neighboring property, which is probably five, 600 yards away from where my late season box blind is. Mm-hmm. And they would co- go out and, and eat in, on this hillside and then they would slowly filter, you know, last year I had standing beans, they'd slowly filter down to, to, to me, but it took a lot of luck to, for them to get there in time, you know, for, for me to shoot them, you know, in legal shooting hours and camera light and all that good stuff. Well, this year I had the farmer, I paid the farmer to leave two acres of standing corn. And, um, knowing this cold front was coming, the same cold front you're talking about. I mean, it's a huge, it's like highs in the 28s, lows in the, you know, the 15, 18 degree range. It's high pressure. It's like 30.5, 30.6. I mean, it's, it's ridiculously high pressure, which Mark always says late season, you need a higher and you get higher pressures like that when the high pressure ushers in. So today and tomorrow or the days to be in, in, you know, in the woods. Yeah. So I asked the farmer on, well, I asked him last week. I, last week I said, Hey, I want to cut the corn on Monday. If you could brush hog it, an acre of it. And uh, I said, no problem. Well, I went up there. He, he couldn't, he didn't, you know, the implement was somewhere else and he couldn't do it until last night. And I was asking Mark and dad, I'm like, in your experience, how long does it take for deer to kind of find that food source? And Mark was saying, you know, it could be four to five days. He, in his opinion, he likes four to five days uh, before the front hits to, to for them to get acclimated. But once they find it, they crush it. And so I'm, you know, it's just like, man, I'm, I'm like up against it. And And then come to find out, like of my eight camera guys, none of them could film, you know, th- these are all guys that have full-time jobs and we just, they're yeah. friends, you know, we just try to, I, I kind of ask around to see who's available. And unfortunately nobody can even film the night anyway. So it looks like I got to wait till tomorrow, but my hope is based on last year and kind of seeing how they all reacted, they come out of my neighbor's timber into his field and then they'll come slowly over to our field, you know, and, and eat that food source. I'm hoping that maybe I can entice some, you know, hook or I I honestly think the deer that I missed last year, uni, I just had pictures of him again this year show up (laughs) and he's a good looking deer, 150 inch, 10 pointer, five year old, you know, so I have a couple bucks that I know of. But the only deer that I'm consistently getting pictures of right now is a nice four-year-old that really needs to be passed. Just to your point with with Holyfield, this deer is great, but he can be a giant next year. You know, he's my next hook, my next blade, but he needs another year. And, of course, he's the only deer I have consistently showing up on my cameras right now. And it's really tough. Just your same point. It's funny you brought that up because it's like, man – if I get this deer 20 yards in front of me, you know, with perfect conditions, am I, am I really thinking I'm not going to shoot him with a bow? Cause that's all I have left is a bow tag. 
and I'd have a hard time believing I wouldn't because yeah. on this property, I've never killed a deer. And I've, this is the second year I've really hunted it hard. And I mean, it's, it's one of those things I've killed two nice deer so far this year and I don't need to kill anything, but I've not killed anything. Those are on other people's properties. This right. is kind of like my baby. This is something that I've worked really hard and it's almost a thing where it's like, I want to prove I can do it. Yeah. So this four-year-old walks out in front of me and he's maybe 140 inch four-year-old. It's like, am I really going to pass this deer with a bow if I have the right conditions? I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess time will tell, right. <laughs> but, uh, I'd really have a hard, that'd be a hard thing to do. Hook yeah. I, right now he, he's dead to me until <laughs> he proves otherwise. Now the saving grace is he showed back up last year once I started putting analogics out in the summertime and getting you know and getting those velvet pictures. Yeah. So if he did live, he's an absolute giant. Now I've gotten word from a lot of people in that area, even my farmers, like, "Hey, did you guys kill a giant up there?" And Aaron Bennett, my uh, friend and camera guy, he he got a message from somebody on Facebook, "Hey, I heard you guys killed a giant up there," and we didn't, and we haven't. So that mm. makes me worry a little bit that somebody killed Hook and we just don't know who. But it, I'd have a hard time believing we wouldn't have heard about it. All right. Uh, but but you never know. So anyways, uh, he's dead until proven otherwise. So I'm kind of in my mind I've moved on somewhat. You always have that hope he's going to show up. And I mm-hmm. hope that these conditions and uh, a, you know acre of cut corn and, and cold, frigid, late season temperatures will lure all kinds of deer out. Um, but you never know. So that's kind of my saga with the lease right now. Um, and we'll see how it goes. I, I'm yeah. still to find a camera guy. It's right now it's almost 11 o'clock. I'm, I mean, and if I don't find somebody in the next hour, I'm not going tonight, but tomorrow I do have a camera guy. So we'll be sitting that cut corn and we'll see how it goes. Hey, yeah, uh, you can pull a Kenyan and try to cell film it. <laughs> I don't know that I'd be as good as you are at that. <laughs> it's the, 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 the box blind that I have there, it's a, it's called a freestyle. It, it was a big game product years ago. They don't even sell them anymore. And when you get the, it's weird the way it goes down to the base, it's real narrow at the bottom. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of room otherwise, but it's narrow at the bottom. And especially with two guys and all the equipment. And even if I had just me and a tripod, it's like, it's tough shooting. It's last year. I actually had an encounter late season with my bow and a a deer that actually it's this four-year-old this year. I thought he was a rundown four-year-old last year. It turns out he was a three-year-old and I'm (laughs) glad I didn't shoot him, but he, uh, I almost shot him and me and the camera guy were having issues getting around each other. And it's just, it's real tight and narrow squeeze. So I, I don't know, self-filming, I don't know that I could pull it off like you do. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not, definitely not ideal, but, uh, sometimes kind of stuck with what you got, but uh, I yeah. hope, I hope it works out for you soon because yeah, like you said, the conditions are awesome and, uh, and I'm going out tonight too, trying to take advantage of it. So good luck. Yeah. So I guess with that said, since we've got places to be here soon, should we should we get to our series of questions? Let's do it. This is Andrew Lewis from Salina, Kansas. Hey, Mark, had a question. I've got two pieces of property uh, that they surround what I would classify as the big bucks uh, home range where their beds are at. Uh, past four or five years, I've hunted these properties. Uh, 
it's every every shooter buck that I've ever seen has come from this property, uh, and if I don't get a shot at them, uh, they end up going in there. Uh, I mean, it's just I know it's where their home range is. Just wanted to see if you had any maybe tactics, uh, maybe any just insight on trying to get those deer out of there, or maybe how I could hunt those border properties better. Uh, the property that, again, I, I can't hunt, can't get permission to, it's about 200 acres, and uh, on the right side I can hunt about 80 acres, and on the left side it's about another 200 acres, and I can hunt that. Uh, but again, it's agriculture all around that. Um, just wanted to see if maybe you had any insight, man. I would appreciate the help. Thank you. Bye. All right, so this is a particularly relevant question for us, Matt, since it's, it's almost exactly the kind of scenario that both you and I both have yeah. with these stories we've just been talking about with Hook and Holyfield on these two properties. Um, so I, I can offer a few of the th- ideas of what I've been trying to do here with Holyfield because, you know, just like just like him, you know, the buck I'm after is bedding and living primarily on a neighbor's piece in some really thick bedding cover. I just have these peripheries. So I've got, if, if his core area were square in the middle, I can hunt his southern bottom of the square and I can hunt the eastern side of the square kind of um, but that's not really his core, so I'm kind of hunting these edges and hoping he'll make a mistake. And to this point, here's basically been my thinking of it. I've been knowing that right the majority of his time he's on the neighbors, so I need to be careful to try to minimize my pressure as most as possible on the periphery so there's still a chance he might pop out every once in a while. So I've only been hunting these edges when the conditions are just right. And we've talked about this a lot both with, with Mark and different people about what those conditions are, but I've been trying just to hunt when there's cold fronts, trying to focus my hunts when there is stuff like a high barometric pressure or you know, when the moon is right. Um, so timing has been good there. I've been super careful about my wind, of course, just making sure that my wind's not ever blowing into that neighbor's property where I think he's bedded because I don't want him busting out the other side to the other neighbor. I want him always coming out my side. I think my redeeming quality, or the two things I've been hoping on and counting on, is number one, does. So during the rut, I knew that there was a chance he could follow a doe off the neighbors onto mine, and he did that a couple times. I just, you know, one time it was too dark for me to get a shot, another time a little bit out of range. Um, And the second thing is food. Um, So, you know, in my case, neighbors is all cover, mine is where the food is. So now, especially in the late season, I think, and it depends on what his setup is there, if he has good food on his property and at what time of year that food is good. But for me, I have really good, you know, kind of all the way through season food. I've got, you know, some oats that were pretty good in the early and mid-season. I had some clover that was good in November too. But the deer were feeding on cut beans and cut corn and different stuff like that. But now there's less food everywhere else. But I have two really great brassica food plots that are, you know, turnips and kale and rape and all kinds of stuff like that that are very attractive late season. So I think in a situation like that, if you have something that's very unique compared to your neighbors, like a great late season food source, you know, you've got a chance to pull them over to your side of the line if you keep the pressure low throughout the rest of the season until your kind of, uh, you know, ace in the hole is ready, which I think in my case is right now. So I've just been waiting for really good cold weather to get that buck hopefully off his feet in daylight and onto my unique food source, which is on my side of the line. Um, so at a high level, that's kind of how I've been approaching my situation, which which sounds really similar to his. Um, you kind of have a similar deal too, right? Yeah, I mean, I think our strategies are almost 100% the same. I mean, the, the, 
I, I know just based on I've hunted this lease enough that I know that late season, I, I have a ton of does and young bucks, but for whatever reason, I don't hold the mature bucks. Once gun season hits, they disperse. So my whole theory is, I mean, it's really dependent on, I'm really dependent on the farmer and, and, and buying crops back from him uh, to leave them standing until the right time and cut them. But it, I, I also have the biologic planted that, you know, I have uh, last bite and two food plots and they have started. I've noticed that on my cameras, they're starting to crush it. Uh, they're really, but it's almost all does. I mean, I might have 10, 15 does on a biologic plot a night, but I'm not seeing the bucks. So, um, the ace in the hole for me, a hundred percent is get those super, super cold temps coming in and try to get ahead of it and, and cut some of the corn. I got two acres standing right next to one, uh, one box blind and I'm going to cut one acre here for this cold, the first cold snap in December. And then I'm going to leave that second acre for probably late December. I don't want to go too much further than that because I've seen it personally where, you know, and especially on, on all the videos, I've just seen it where you get into late December and then January, even the season, even though the season might still be going on and the Midwest in our area, they can definitely start dropping antlers by then. So, yeah. you know, I, and dad actually was the one that said that. Cause I was like, I got two acres, you know, maybe Christmas or that, that, that winter break, I can do something there. He's like, I wouldn't wait that long. He said, if you have a cold snap and this was months ago, he was telling me, he goes, if you have a really good cold snap in early to mid December, waiting on that front, we even call it in 13 that this phase waiting on a front, he's like, you should definitely cut some and start trying to capitalize off of it. And last year I had gone up to dad's, I hadn't killed anything at this point. And it was late, it was muzzleloader season in Missouri. So late December. And I went up there after a target deer and I was on the way to the stand and I found both the match set of sheds laying in front of the stand. And that was, you know, that was late December. So to his point, you know, if you do have standing food for late season you may not want to wait too too late so um i think our strategies are 100 percent the same we have a variety of food whether it's green or grain we have a variety of food that they like to eat and is palatable this time of year or, or something that they need like those grains like a bean or a you know or, or, or the corn so that's definitely my strategy as well and we'll see if it's paid off or it will pay off i mean last year i definitely had the deer coming off the neighbor i mean i got tons of footage they would come off the neighbor and they would slowly, gradually get to where we were hunting. It's just that usually it was like 15 minutes left in, in the night, you know, before it got, got dark. So yeah. it's, it's like one of those last minute situations typically. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know that, that I think our strategies would be pretty similar here. Yeah. And you know, the one other thing I guess I would add, and I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but if, you know, if you have control some to some degree control the property where you can put in food and that kind of stuff. Um, I would try to know what's on your neighbors, like get a good idea of what they have available and make sure you're offering something different. You know, give the deer a reason to choose to come over to your side of the line. So if they have corn on their property, maybe which can be a good late season food source, obviously is a good season, late season food source, put a different late season food source on yours because deer do like diversity too. You know, I'd rather not have all the same stuff that my neighbor has if I'm trying to get them to come over to my side. Um, so try to switch it up, offer that diversity, offer, you know, I always look at my late season food plots as kind of ice cream. Um, like the deer have got their, their basics cover maybe on the neighbors, but they're going to go out of their way a little bit to get dessert every once in a while if you've got it for them. 
Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. Try to offer that so you, whatever the unique thing might be or whatever the missing piece is. You know, if your neighbor's got good cover and great food but no water, maybe you put a water hole on your side and then on a hot day earlier in the year, you've got that unique thing. Um, yeah. Try to find whatever the missing piece might be and sometimes that's another way to, to get them over to your side a little more too. Yeah, and usually, I mean, from what I've realized just being out in different places, a lot of times your neighbor isn't farming for wildlife necessarily. I yeah. mean, that's, you know, so diversity is great, but a lot of times they planted a, a crop that they had already taken out. You, you know what I mean? So yeah. if you have something standing, no matter if it was the same as what they had, by that point, for late season, by that point, you're good to go anyways. Now, like, you know, we didn't cover early season really at all until you just mentioned, you know, like the watering holes or whatever. And in that case, I think, yeah, the diversity of the food source is, is really key. But, you know, if you can have a haven for the, the doe population, you know, it, that that's not the worst thing in the world either. I mean, for the rut, you know, to draw yep. them over the rut and, and, and late season, those does are going to crush whatever food source you have. And, and typically the, the bucks, now whether they show up in, in daylight or not is a different story, but typically those bucks will find that too, especially if your whole deer herd's heading that direction. Yeah, very true. I'd say, you know, not to stay on this too long, but I'd say the one thing I learned about this type of scenario in my case this year, you know, I don't have as much of the great cover on my property. Most of that's on the neighbors. And what I realized I'd done a little bit is that I had tried a little bit too hard earlier in the year to try to kill Holyfield, hoping he'd come to one of my early season food sources. And because of that, I put a little pressure on the local does. And so I wasn't have as, having as many does on my property during my rut week or two I was hunting there. I think in retrospect, it would have been smarter to lay off, you know, unless I knew for sure he was on daylight or moving in daylight on those food sources, coming off the neighbors. It would have been better probably to keep the pressure even lower so that during the rut, I don't have a great like pinch point to hunt. I don't have great bedding areas that I can hunt. I'm kind of completely dependent on a doe being there that that my buck's chasing. So I wish I had kept it a little bit lower so there was a little bit better chance that these does would be in my spot so that maybe they could have pulled him over the line. Um, so I think that's one thing. If you have a scenario like that where you don't have the good, you know, rutting cover or whatever, if you're hunting, if you're going to be hunting at that point, you're kind of counting on the does to pull them over. So you better not pressure those does beforehand. Yeah. It's just hard to stay out yeah. <laughs> when you feel like you got a chance or when the weather's right and you don't, you don't, you know, you're not even getting pictures, but the weather's really good. And you're like, well, tonight could be the night he shows up. It's hard to stay out. That's, so that's, it takes a lot of discipline and guys like Mark and Terry and, and the guys that are successful in doing that a lot of times, well, they also have other spots to hunt, you yeah. know, or deer to hunt and, and guys, your case, my case, you know, if you have one target animal, you're going to take your shots when the conditions are right, you know, so that's, it's tough to stay out. Yeah. It's, it's like trying to, trying to find that line. Like what's the line of knowing when to go versus when to stay out. And when to be aggressive, when to be passive. Exactly. And that's, that just comes with experience and hard lessons learned. And, uh, you know, we're all going to, we're all going to get better every time we fail. We're going to learn something from it. So my God, I should be pretty good by now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, so what do you say we move to the next question? Let's do it. Hey guys, this is Jesse from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. My question would be a lot more relevant to people on the East coast. Um, we use a lot of the same tactics you use as far as pictures of deer patterning them throughout the summer in September and October around here. But a lot of us also hunt in the Midwest. 
leases in. I have a lease in Kentucky. A lot of friends go to Missouri, Illinois. And we usually would go hunt there the last week of archery, the first couple of days of rifle, and uh, you know, the second week in November there. And we don't have access to pictures of the deer throughout the year. We know the, the layout of the land, and we know the history of what we've seen as far as deer movement that second week in November, but we don't have a lot of other knowledge about um, about some of the deer on the property. So what kind of tactics would you be using or where would you be hunting if you don't have that uh, huge file full of pictures throughout the year? Okay, I have a couple of thoughts on this one real quick. Yeah. First of all, I loved how he said Missouri. Sound like Donald Trump. You could tell he's a close guy. I love that. Uh, all right. So as it comes to the, the, the property itself, a couple things and knowing what deer you have uh, on it, wa- wondering if maybe he could get down, you know, in mid-March, him and his buddies, to do a shed hunt. That would be one thought on, on trying to find out what survived, what do they have for the coming year. Now, obviously, that doesn't give you MRI once the season gets here, but it, it'll at least give you a general idea. Hey, we did find the sheds for the, you know, these, these deer. I think we're fortunate now with the technology that you could potentially get a cell phone camera or two and that they're expensive. And obviously, if you're that far away, you'd have to use the solar battery or however that that works. You probably know more about that than I do. I know it can be expensive, but there's some pretty, pretty good ones on the market from what I understand. And that could help you, uh, leading into your hunt. Um, really, I think, you know, you got to almost use, go back to some of your woodsmanship, which I think a lot of us, especially younger hunters, millennial hunters, I don't know that we have the same skill set that our fathers and forefathers had because we have been so reliant on technology. But it kind of almost goes back to that. If you go for your shed hunt and say there's snow on the ground or if you're lucky or just in general, you can really get a good idea of what the lay of your property is during a shed hunt. I mean, you're going places that you would never dream of walking during the season. So I would really scour that, look for pinch points, look for, um, you know, trails, uh, any kind of sign from the previous season. And, you know, when you get there, you may not have the week before's pictures or, you know, the weeks leading into it pictures, but generally those areas, the sign, the pinch points are historically the same areas. I mean, deer, once they find that, that's their home turf. And I think he has an advantage in the fact that they're staying out of it until they crush in for the rutter season. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with you. Um, I'm in a very similar scenario many times, you know, I hunt Ohio or Iowa or these different states where I live, you know, five, six, seven, eight hours away. So I can't go there very often. So I, I try to do what you just mentioned. I try to get to these places once in like March for a shed hunt. So you can shed hunt and you can scout. And in this scenario, you know, I would, you know, just like you said, go back to the basics. Um, I would try to, in the spring, locate, like you said, pinch points and then locate doe bedding areas. And if you know those two things right there, I mean, you can throw all the trail camera pictures out the window if you want and just focus on those two types of features and you can have a pretty successful rut hunt because you can hunt those pinch points and funnels that deer are going to be cruising through during the rut, going from point A to point B looking for does. And then you can hunt the downwind side of doe bedding areas during the day when those bucks are, that's their destination. They're trying to get to those doe bedding areas 
cruise downwind of them and see if there's a, a doe in there ready to go. And of course, food sources are going to be great, especially for those evening hunts. So if you can figure those things out in the spring, and of course it's not foolproof, but if you can get a pretty good idea of those things in the spring, you can go into a new, or you can go into a property in the fall without having any pictures and have a pretty good chance of putting yourself in a good position. Of course, you can observe. Cameras would help you tweak that, help you, especially if you're trying to go after a specific buck or something like that. But in this case, it doesn't sound like that's possible. Um, now, to your point, they could get a wireless camera. Um, or, you know, what we do is I do this shed hunt in the spring, and then I go in late May and do a turkey hunt. And when I do that turkey hunt, I put out cameras. And then I don't come back until August. And so they run for, you know, the three months of the summer. And at least now I know what bucks are in the area. So at least we've got like an idea of, okay, here's the type of deer that's in the area. I don't learn anything that's really going to help me hunt them. But at least I know that there are, you know, X, Y, Z bucks here. Um, yeah. And that's usually enough to at least get you excited and then use your knowledge of the property to then hunt when you come back. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, cameras can be an amazing tool, huge tool, but they're not 100% necessary. People have been killing big mature bucks for many years before we were using all these cameras. Um, so they're fun, they're very useful, but you can certainly use some of these different basic strategies to still have a lot of success. For sure. I think what the cameras have done is it, it helped people zero in on a specific deer. Yeah. You know, that's what I think the difference is. So it probably has helped us with age structure, you know, passing deer, knowing this deer is out there, that kind of thing. But, um, it definitely, obviously you can do it without, you know, and like to your point, I think if you, if you know where the does, if you're hunting the rut or even the gun season, if you're in Missouri, gun season is pretty much usually during the rut or right towards the tail end. Right. You know, I mean, you're going to see if you got the does, you're going to see the bucks. So I, I'd really be curious to see what, you know, in March or Feb, late February, early March, what that shed hunt looks like and what the train looks like during that period. So that that would be my observation for this question. Yeah. And, and, and one thing to your point, it's really almost a benefit to be away from your property like that. If you know that nobody else is going to be out there, yeah. it's great because it, it eliminates the temptation to go out there too much. Um, and puts yourself in a, put yourself in a good position when the rut finally comes around. So yeah. it's not all bad. Nope. All right. On to the next one. Yeah. Hey guys, this is TJ Dennis from Columbia, South Carolina. My question is in regard to hunting clear cuts. I live in South Carolina and as you know, uh, the practice of clear cutting timber and, and pine tree stands here in the Southeast is common as is with the rest of the country. Um, but we did this about a year ago on our particular hunting club and it's gotten to be pretty thick in just a year and I know it'll continue to get thicker and be a great place for, for bedding. But at the same time, it's really hard to pattern the deer and you can see the areas where they bed out there. Um, and there's random sign, but again, it's just that it's very random. Um, hard to see exactly where they, uh, enter and exit. Uh, the perimeter of the club is hardwoods. So there's acorns and, and mast. That's uh, all over the place, so plenty of food for them. There's no ag or anything to speak of, but I'm just a little confused on whether to focus on trying to hunt the perimeter of the clear cut or back in the woods and focusing on travel corridors and pinch points and maybe different strategies for different times of the year. Thanks so much. So I've got a few thoughts on this one, Matt. Um, I have hunted a few spots that have something just like this, you know, some type of recently cut new growth. 
Um, and then also kind of similar scenarios with different particulars, but the same basic gist. I mean, basically what he has here is he has an area of very thick new cover that's great bedding habitat, and there's probably a lot of good food in there too. And, um, you know, I think you can do a, t a couple things. I think one is you could look at this almost as a sanctuary type scenario where because you have so much good cover here in this area, it's going to be tremendous bedding. These deer are going to feel very safe in there. And I think there's a temptation because you know the deer are going to be in there a lot. There's the temptation to want to barge in there and try to hunt it because, you know, you know they're in there. But I think there's a lot of risk in that when you have a, an area of just all thick cover that's hard to really know that, okay, I know they're bedding in this little piece. Um, but when it's maybe 10 acres or 20 acres, it's all kind of homogenous. It's tough to, to get in there without potentially bumping deer, especially, you know, if there's a big mature buck in, in the area, that's probably where he's bedded. Um, so I think I would probably approach this and, and look at this as potentially using that clear cut as a sanctuary, leave that as the core of the property that you can, you know, stay out of there. These deer will feel safe in there and then hunt those edges. And I think deer are creatures of edge. And they're deer of, you know, they're animals of, you know, trying to find out where they can live without hunting pressure. So you've got this sanctuary where they feel safe. Then you know, okay, so they need to leave that sometimes. How are they going to do that? Well, deer always relate to edges. So you know that hunting the, the, the transition between that thick, nasty cover and the open hardwoods, that's going to be a travel corridor just by the fact that they can be in the cover easily or they can be out in the open to feed in the acorns or whatever. So I key in on those edges. And then, you know, figuring out what the food source is at the time. So when the acorns are dropping, well then, yeah, they're going to be coming out of the sanctuary into those oak flats. So figuring out when that is, figuring out where those oak flats are, and then finding out, okay, where on the edge is it most likely that they're going to come through. And that's just going to happen with observation or placing cameras around the edge to figure out where the most common areas are that they're going to be coming in and moving out of. Um, another thing to think about, I think, would be during the rut. If you've got a lot of does bedding in that clear cut, you're probably going to get bucks cruising the downwind edge of the clear cut to scent check that area too. So that's another thought: is during the rut, hunt the downwind side. Of, uh, excuse me, the downwind side of that. And then finally, if you're doing that, another great tactic to use in that kind of scenario would be calling and rattling. Um, now it, it might be different on the different parts of the country, but that's a great way to pull a buck out of cover from a bedding type scenario like that into the edge or into the open like that. So especially if it's a relatively young clear cut where you can see in there, it's a, it'd be an awesome place to hunt because you can hunt the edge and the deer feel very safe in there, but you can might be able to see deer moving through it still off in the distance. Um, and that's a great scenario to observe and then call when you see a good one and hope you can get them in just close enough. So I think that's that's where I stand. I wouldn't push on there too much. I'd hunt the edges smartly and uh, and see what you can make happen. What do you think, Matt? You know, I, I obviously I don't have much experience with that type of hunting, um, but I know just over the years watching our teams down at Terra Wildlife in Mississippi or Doug Hampton a lot of times in Arkansas, which is his home state, uh, he's had a lot of success hunting this style. of uh, and, and, you know, one year I remember he actually, they came in and clear cut uh, right before his hunt, maybe a couple weeks before his hunt, and he didn't realize they were, you know, he was on a hunting um, like a, a club and he didn't realize they were doing it and he went there in there 
and hunted anyways and, and where his tree stand was in this one spot and literally all the clear cut was all around him and sure enough a big buck come out and he still had an opportunity and almost acted as some of the clear cut almost acted as a um it pushed him in a certain direction you know a, a, almost a wall so to speak and it forced him in front of his stand and so i mean you know I, like i said i don't know i don't have a lot of experience i've never hunted uh clear cuts but i've seen our guys do it with success you know year after year so I mean, to me, it sounds like your theory is there as good as any. Uh, if I were to go in and, and, and hunt inside the clear cut, it would probably just be uh, perfect conditions with high pressure morning, you know, maybe a morning hunt, and, you know, in the middle of the rut when they're kind of going anywhere and you can't do too much damage. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got kind of a scenario like this where I've got, it's not a clear cut, but it's a swampy area that was selectively cut a number of years ago. So it's lots of blowdowns and it's kind of wide open, not big timber, but just brushy junk in there. And yeah, I stay out of it as a sanctuary, except occasionally I think, you know, at the end of the rut, just before gun season, it's like my last chance to kill a buck before gun season. Those are the days when I'm like, you know what, it's worth going in there and just giving it a shot because, you know, during that time period, they're chasing around all in there and they stay right in that sanctuary cover. And that's the kind of time frame when you've got the right conditions. And if you're running out of time, then it might be worth pushing in there and just hoping to get lucky because you're just right in the middle of it. Um, but, man, a clear cut is a great situation usually because it's just terrific deer habitat. It's great safety cover. It's great food. Um, just having that, no matter how you hunt it, it's probably going to be a good thing for you once that starts to grow up and become so lush and thick. So not a bad situation at all. Well, that was the third and final question of the rapid fire. I kind of like doing it this way. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. I, I enjoy tackling some different ideas like this. It's always kind of, it's good just for like for my own brain to think through different scenarios that maybe I haven't been hunting in recently, but just, you know, what I do, what, you know, how can I apply what I do in my own personal hunting to that type of deal? That kind of just thinking through types of things kind of helps us as hunters, I think. Absolutely. Well, should we wrap this one up and go hunting ourselves? Hey, hey, if I find a camera guy, <laughs> you're, you're, you're all set though. You're going tonight, right? Yeah. Yeah. If I was closer, I'd come help you out, Matt, but it's probably like a 10 hour drive. So not tonight. <laughs> what are the temperatures there tonight? It's going to be like a high of, well, a high of, I think 25 degrees today, but by the time, you know, we're in the sweet spot of that last hour of daylight, it's probably gonna be like 22 or 21. So it's going to be brisk, chilly, and, uh, hopefully the big boys are moving. And you'll be in a tree stand or a blind or... I think tonight I, I've got a I've got a big box blind I could hunt, and then I've got a tree stand over another food source I could hunt. But I think I'm leaning towards the back food plot, which would be a tree stand. So uh, I'm gonna be bundled up. Yes, <laughs> for sure. That last, yeah. you know, it's that last hour to half hour. You can withstand the first few hours pretty easily, but it's that last half hour to hour where your fingers and your toes, you just start losing. You uh -huh. know, your, your face mask is done, filled up with snot. That's, the period where it's like this is miserable <laughs> uh -huh. i'm gonna be packing double hand warmers tonight so <laughs> hopefully like that. that'll get me through it well, well good luck i hope to hear uh or get a con you know a successful text from you tonight and i hope i've got one to send you that would be exciting for sure and i guess uh, I'll, I'll leave everyone with our typical reminder here at the end that if you want to send in your question you can go to wiredtohunt.com slash 100 wild and you'll see all the instructions for how to do that and you can follow what's going on with Wired Hunt and the Wired Hunt podcast all at wiredhunt.com and, and across the various social media platforms. And I appreciate that. And, uh, and Matt, what do you got? 
Yeah, I wanted to let everybody know that uh, we're kind of, and it's been a long time since we've done this at Drury Outdoors, but we're kind of opening up the uh, the team a little bit again, and we're just kind of looking not hard, but if there's you know some guys out there or a husband, wife, or two girls, whatever, it doesn't matter. If there's a group that are filming their hunts and they're serious and they have years of history of of being successful filming kills on, on, you know, camera, uh, I'd be interested in, in hearing from you. We're, we're just wanting to get a little fresh blood in, uh, in jury outdoors and, and, uh, see what we got. So anyways, just kind of putting that out there. Uh, you could always email us through our website, uh, at comments at juryoutdoors.com and I'll, I'll read through those emails, but send me a link of, uh, of your success, and we'll see uh, see if it's a fit. So that's the biggest thing I want to say. Of course, you can find us on uh, juryoutdoors.com, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all of those at Drury Outdoors. Uh, we're doing some really, really cool stuff over on Drury Outdoors' YouTube channel, uh, which is where you could find this podcast. Please subscribe. We're hitting a lot of views every, every week, and we're hitting all cylinders right now. So original content coming out every week, probably three or four different videos a week on the site. And, uh, we would love it if you come over and check them out. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I wish I had uh, a guy like Joe behind the scenes pumping out all the good stuff like you guys have. <laughs> it takes yeah. a lot of work. I imagine it does. It takes a team and these, the editors here, Jake and Alex and Benji and Joe, and they all do a phenomenal job. We have as many guys working on, uh, internet online stuff as we do TV stuff. So, uh, it's important to us. We're definitely trying to be out in the forefront in our industry as far as the amount of quality content. I know there's plenty of guys that have been doing it and, and, and that are web only, but from the TV guys, we're trying to, to pave our path over online. And I feel like we're putting some good original content out there. So check it out. Yeah. You guys are doing good stuff. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you everyone for listening and watching and good luck hunting. All right. Good luck. Peace.